0: Welcome to another edition of the Power and Utilities Surge podcast. I'm Sal Montemano. I am the PwC Power and Utilities Tax Leader. Today we'll be covering excess deferred taxes, and unfortunately I don't have a special guest for this one, so you'll have to hear me fly solo with respect to excess deferred taxes and some of the new guidance that's been issued in that area. In particular, we'll cover Revenue Procedure 2020-39 that was recently released. And we'll touch on private letter ruling 2020 33002, which deals specifically with cost of removal and how that works its way into excess deferred taxes. But before we jump into that, maybe just a quick background on excess deferred taxes. And I know we covered some of this on my first podcast addressing some of the Biden tax proposals and how that would impact the utility industry. So I would encourage you to listen to that if you haven't already. Uh, But with respect to excess deferred taxes with the tax cuts in jobs act in 2017, the federal corporate tax rate went from 35% to 21%. And what most corporations were able to do was simply remeasure their deferred tax liabilities and write down those deferred taxes by that 14% with an adjustment to the income statement. With power and utilities companies, it's not quite that simple. The first reason is there's a particular section of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, 13001D, that provides that with respect to protected deferred taxes, you cannot adjust those deferred taxes immediately you have to write them down over one of two methods, either the average rate assumption method or reverse South Georgia or what's called the alternative method in this case. And what that essentially means is that those excess deferred taxes get reversed over time as the book depreciation on those assets reverses the tax depreciation that originally created those deferred taxes in the first place. The ARAM is a very specific methodology for how it's done. But if you don't have the books and records to use ARAM, you can use the alternative method or reverse South Georgia, which really is determining the average book depreciation rate at which those deferred taxes turn and kind of applies that on a straight line basis. There's also what's known as unprotected deferred taxes, and that's everything outside of 13001-D of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So the protected deferred taxes only covers the excess deferred taxes for depreciation-related differences or method life depreciation, to be more specific. Everything else would fall in the unprotected bucket, And it's really up to the regulators and the utilities to determine how the deferred taxes on that unregulated or unprotected bucket gets reversed. It could be done all at once, just like any other corporation in the world, straight to the income statement, or it could be done over time. And the general reason for it to be done over time is to avoid the rate shock of the immediate reversal of those deferred taxes through rates and the bills that electric, gas, and water companies, uh, customers have to pay uh, in any given year. So the service solicited feedback on how to apply the rules in 13001D of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act through notice 2019-33. And they solicited seven areas of commentary uh, that they wanted to provide rules on for how to apply either the ARAM or alternative method um, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. We won't go over all seven areas specifically right now, but essentially we'll talk about those areas when we cover what does RevProc 2020-39 address and what does 2020-39 not address. So with that, maybe we'll jump into what it does address. And the first thing it tries to address is when you can use ARAM versus the alternative method or reverse South Georgia. Now the way the statute is written is that if you have the books and records you have to use ARAM. And if you don't have those books and records to be able to use ARAM, then you're allowed to use the alternative method. So with respect to RevProc 2020-39, When does it say that you can use the alternative method? Well, the first thing is if you have vintage account deficiencies. So what does that mean? Well, most tax records are kept on a vintage account basis. You have to know the year that it's placed in service so that you know whether to use acres depreciation, makers depreciation, and whether the asset is bonus eligible or whether it's non-bonus eligible. Um, so you keep depreciation for tax purposes on a vintage account basis, based on the place and service date. For most utilities and for most corporations, they don't necessarily keep book depreciation on a vintage account basis. They simply depreciate it using a certain percentage every year based on the estimated life of the property. And so the question it comes down to, in order to use ARAM, you have to be able to match up the book depreciation on a vintage account basis with the tax depreciation on a vintage account basis. And if you have those vintage account deficiencies, what the the RevProx says is that you don't necessarily have to use ARAM, you can use the reverse South Georgia or alternative method of simply using the book average life and reversing those excess deferreds from a protected standpoint on a straight line basis. The other thing the REVPROC says is that if you have composite depreciation from a book standpoint, that you don't necessarily have to create vintage account records in order to use ARAM, that you can simply use the alternative method from uh, a excess deferred tax standpoint. And the REVPROC acknowledges that from a FERC standpoint, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, for those that file with FERC, that Composite depreciation is the norm. So there seems to be an acknowledgment that if you are FERC regulated, that you could pretty much use the reverse South Georgia method unless you have the vintage account records to use aram which I know that a lot of companies have gone back and essentially created vintage account records in order to be on ARAC. The third thing the RevPROC addresses with respect to this ARAM versus the alternative method is what happens if you have multiple regulatory bodies. So if the regulatory bodies agree um, on one method or another, you could choose what method to use, presuming that you don't have the books and records to, to use ARAM specifically. So let's say that you're FERC regulated and you only have composite depreciation for FERC purposes, but you're also regulated by the state of Missouri. In that case, if you don't have the books and records to use ARAM for FERC purposes, you could be on the alternative method. And even if you had the books and records to be able to use ARAM for Missouri purposes, if Missouri is okay with you using the alternative method, then you can use the alternative method across the board. So you could choose one method if you're regulated by multiple regulatory bodies, but you can't necessarily cherry pick. If you have the books and records to use ARAM, you're still bound to use ARAM. Uh, but if in one of those jurisdictions you don't, then you can use the alternative method across the board. And lastly, the prop provides transition rules for how to correct. And basically, they say that if you're doing something differently or not in accord with this revenue procedure, you can correct it in your next available rate case or next available regulatory filing. So they're not going to deem activities not in accord with the revenue procedure to be a normalization violation, a violation of those excess deferred tax rules. They're providing the transition for you to correct it in your next available rate case and next filing. The second thing that's addressed in Revenue Procedure 2020-39 is net operating loss deferred tax assets. So the one thing I said earlier is that method life depreciation differences are protected. And they fall within 1301-D of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in which you have to give it back using either ARAM or the alternative method. But what happens if that method life depreciation creates net operating losses. And those net operating losses are booked as deferred tax assets. There have been a series of private letter rulings that indicate that those net operating loss DTAs, if they're related to method life depreciation, deferred tax liabilities, that those NOL DTAs are also protected. So this revenue procedure addresses, what do you do with the excess deferred taxes that are related to those net operating loss DTAs? And they seem to provide some flexibility. They seem to indicate that really it's between you and your regulatory body to determine the piece of those NOL DTAs that are protected under these 13001D rules of the revenue procedure or I'm sorry, of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. But they do say that if the methodology for determining that violates normalization, um, then they won't necessarily agree with that particular methodology. So as I mentioned, there are a series of private letter rulings that have pretty clearly said that those deferred tax assets on NOLs are protected to the extent they're related to method life depreciation differences. And most of those private letter rulings have used a with and without methodology to determine the NOL DTAs that are protected, meaning you calculate what your NOL would be with accelerated depreciation and without accelerated depreciation, and that difference would be protected. Now, presumably, if you use that method, it would be within the normalization rules, given that There have been a series of of rulings that have blessed that method, if you will. But I do think that the RevProc provides some flexibility to do something differently, and maybe some flexibility to public utility commissions to force utilities to do something differently there. But we'll have to see how that particular issue develops. The last issue that's addressed in the revenue procedure is how to deal with certain retirements. In particular, retirements that would be covered by Regulation Section 1.168I-3. Now, those regulations were put in in the middle 2000s, and they specifically addressed deregulation situations. So, companies where they were integrated utilities, but they may have deregulated certain parts of their business, in particular generation is probably the most glaring example. And what happens to excess deferred taxes under the 1986 Tax Reform Act? So the 86 Tax Reform Act in 203E has provisions similar to 13001D of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So when the tax rate went from 46 to 34% in 1986, Those protected differences had to be given back over the average rate assumption method or had to be given back over RSG if you didn't have the records to use ARAM. But the question was when you deregulated certain generation assets in a deregulation setting, could you continue to give back the excess deferred taxes on those uh, assets using an ARAM approach? And what 1.168 I-3 said was, yes, you can continue to give back excess deferred taxes on deregulated property as if it continued to be regulated property. What this particular red proc says is that you would apply that particular regulation to 13001D of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And it is operative here, even though the reg specifically says it only applies to the Tax Reform Act of 1986. So that's what 2020-39 covers. Now we may jump into what 2020-39 does not address. And the first thing it doesn't address is the scope of what's protected. So I've been pretty clear that what is protected are method life depreciation differences. But there could be a lot of what goes into a method life depreciation difference. And one thing that could go into it is cost of removal. So when books depreciates an asset using composite depreciation, there's also a small piece added to that depreciation for net salvage. And that would be the cost of removal in excess of salvage value that's anticipated at the end of an asset's lot. So if I'm depreciating transmission property, let's say using a 4% rate, I may bake in an extra 1% of book depreciation for the cost to remove those transmission assets at the end of the book useful life of that property. So I depreciate those assets at a 5% rate a year instead of a 4% rate a year. And the question is, what do I use for ARAM purposes when I'm factoring my book depreciation, do I use the 4% or do I use the 5%? And to the extent that that cost of removal piece creates a deferred tax asset, is that a protected deferred tax asset or an unprotected deferred tax asset? Now that is not covered in RevPROC 2020-39, but it is addressed in PLR 2020-33002. And what that PLR says is that cost of removal is specifically not protected. So if I'm creating a deferred tax asset for cost of removal, that is specifically unprotected according to that private letter ruling. And what the PLR also indicates, or at least implies very strongly, is that other deferred tax assets that could be created would not be protected as well. So what other deferred tax assets may exist? Well, capitalized interest could be one. Uh, If there's interest that gets capitalized under 263 cap A little f into the basis of your assets for tax purposes, it would create a deferred tax asset. And presumably that would not be protected as well uh, under these normalization rules. But it's important to note that only the PLR addresses that particular issue. We still don't know exactly what the scope of what's protected and what's not protected because that's not addressed per se in 2020-39. The other thing that's not specifically addressed in 2020-39 are the proration and consistency rules in the normalization rules. So Section 5 of 2020-39 specifically says that unless stated otherwise, the regular normalization rules apply to access deferred taxes. And there are specific situations in which proration rules apply and the consistency rules apply with respect to normalization. And this podcast probably an hour and a half and describe all that, but for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to jump into all that. It's just to say it's still a little unclear whether proration and consistency applies to excess deferred taxes or doesn't. If you think it does apply, you can certainly read Section 5 of 2020-39 to say that the other normalization rules do apply to excess deferred taxes. However, it isn't specifically addressed in 2020-39. So if your argument is that they don't apply to excess deferred taxes, you can say that nothing is specifically addressed with respect to that in 2020-39. The other thing that's not specifically addressed in the REF is what to do with ordinary retirement. So going back to 1.168 I-3, which applied to that deregulation setting there's language in that reg that specifically says it doesn't apply to ordinary retirements as defined in the ADR depreciation regs. So what are those type of ordinary retirements? Well generally they're the type of retirements you normally think of that would run through your 4797 on your tax return. Meaning that if you have transmission or distribution assets and you simply retire poles or retire wires on a routine basis if you have generation assets and you replace certain components of those assets that aren't deemed to be repairs that are deemed to be capital additions your corresponding um, old assets are being retired and you're typically taking gain or loss on those assets through your 4797. This is to be contrasted with extraordinary retirements which are usually you know, retirements where you're getting rid of whole assets, uh, trades or business assets uh, in mass, or you're abandoning an asset, like abandoning a coal plant, for instance, would be an extraordinary retirement versus the run-of-the-mill type ordinary retirement. And so the question is, what do you do with excess deferred taxes on those ordinary retirements as you retire assets going forward? Do you just set your excess deferred taxes and run it out as if those assets aren't retired? Or do you reverse a piece of those excess deferred taxes as those assets are being retired? I can tell you, I see diversity in practice depending on how the excess deferred tax calculations are being set up. But this particular RevProc didn't answer that particular question one way or, other, or another and doesn't specifically address ordinary retirements. And you could also argue that even if it endorses 1.168 I-3, that that particular regulation doesn't address ordinary retirements either. It really is designed to address more extraordinary retirements in a deregulation setting. So I guess the question is, where does that leave us with ordinary retirements? Well, I, I think it still leaves us with some unanswered questions. And presumably utilities are doing something now, either setting it or and forgetting it or reversing excess deferreds uh, as assets are being retired. And I would think that they would continue to do whatever they're doing unless they want to seek some sort of guidance, specifically blessing the particular method that they're using with respect to that. So that's the scope of RevFROC 2020-39 and PLR 2020-33002. Certainly, there are a lot of aspects to think about from an excess deferred tax standpoint. And if you have specific questions, I would encourage you to reach out to me. With that, I'll wrap up this podcast. And Until next time, say thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.